Hello, greetings. I'm so glad that you've joined us. Very glad that you have an interest in spiritual matters. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. In Matthew 16, in verse 18, after Peter had made the great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus commended him and said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the church there, in functional terms, is described in many different ways. It's described as a body, for instance, by Paul in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. Paul will also speak of it as a household or a family in 1 Timothy 3.15. He will also speak of it as a temple in 1 Corinthians 3 and in Ephesians 2 and Peter as well in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's also known as a remnant in Romans 11.5, an assembly or ecclesia just by virtue of its meaning of the word. Another way that we can thus look at the church that would include a lot of these ideas that we've mentioned would be that of a community. When we think of a community, we normally think of maybe a neighborhood or a city. Maybe a group of people with some kind of common cause. And in the very same way, the church is to be a community. And so let's spend some time looking in the New Testament and how the church uh, is to be a community, how we can work together to make that community be what God would have it to be. We begin by looking at these two words that are frequently associated with the church, ecclesia and koinonia. Ecclesia is often described in terms of its origin, ek and kleo, the called out. And it's kind of an interesting idea and can be kind of helpful in some ways. But uh, the word was used many hundreds of years before uh, we get to the New Testament. So by the New Testament, it has a very distinct meaning, and that meaning is assembly. And it referred most specifically to an assembly of a city that would congregate to perform a function like our legislature in Acts 19.39. It could also represent the whole collective of a people who had gathered together like Israel in the Old Testament. It could refer to a riot in Acts 19 as well. So Ephesus had its assembly. Athens had its assembly. The kingdom of heaven has its assembly. It's ecclesia as well, and that is the church. The ecclesia of Christ is not concerned with political legislation, but it is the body or the community of the saved. And just like a political ecclesia, an assembly would be worthless if it didn't come together and pass laws. So an ecclesia of Christ that doesn't come together to encourage itself and, and its members is also not going to be of great value, according to Hebrews 10 and verse 25. But just like the members of a political ecclesia had a life outside of that meeting and would have interacted with other members of the ecclesia outside of that meeting, so also it's true for those who are part of Christ's ecclesia, that there's more to... Uh, life than just being in the assembly, and in fact, that its members have association outside of the assembly. And so as a political ecclesia represented a body of citizens in a, in, a, in a city, so the ecclesia of Christ represents the body of the citizens in the kingdom, the community itself, and that it is people. This word koinonia, and koinonia is used with reference to the relationship that Christians have with God and with one another. So in 1 John chapter 1, John says that he writes his, his, his letters so that uh, uh, those who read may have fellowship with him as, in fact, his fellowship is with uh, God. And that word fellowship there is koinonia. In verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, koinonia, with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. So this koinonia it comes from, Greek, from the same as koine, perhaps. You've heard of koine Greek. It was called koine Greek because it was common Greek. So a koinonia is something held in common. 
And so that's why Thera will define it as fellowship, association, community, communion, joint participation, intercourse, the share with which one has in anything, participation, a gift jointly contributed, a collection, a contribution as exhibiting an embodiment and proof of fellowship. Now, if you notice there, the third definition Thayer gives for koinonia is, in fact, community. And, in fact, the idea implicit in an association or a community is that the members of such a group will interact frequently. If there's an association, there's some kind of a way that the members associate. It's very important for us to recognize that in the New Testament, koinonia is a noun. It represents more of a state than than some kind of... uh, behavior. Even when used as a verb, the verb indicates the existence of the state of being. We demonstrate that we have koinonia. We demonstrate what we have in common. We do things together. We don't actually practice uh, this idea of koinonia. We don't practice association. We do things that demonstrate our association. And so the community uh, that may exist uh, is only demonstrated by the actions of those who comprise it. Something very important for us to keep in mind, there's going to be a level of community just by virtue of the fact that there's people who come together for a shared purpose. Uh, but what, how strong that relationship is, how strong that community is, is based upon how much effort is being put into it. So let's look at the scriptures to determine more about the nature of the church as a community and how we might establish and strengthen that community. In Acts chapter 2, we read the account of the early church, the earliest church in Jerusalem. We're told the following, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." instructive to look at this passage and to notice a word that keeps getting used over and over again. Yes, they, the early Christians, devoted themselves, among other things, to their koinonia, to their association. But the idea throughout that they were selling their possessions, belongings, distributing as they had all, that's wonderful. They attended the temple together. They broke bread in their homes. They were together. They did things together. They shared what they had. It's an extraordinary example, both sense of the term, extraordinary in the sense of amazing, but also out of the ordinary because of the circumstance in which they found themselves. All gathered together, bound together by this new shared belief in Jesus as the Christ and drawing their strength from that. And so each person was willing to do whatever they could in order to help the group and to strengthen the group. And because of that, it became something immensely attractive. And God was adding to their number uh, day by day those who were being saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul will talk about the church in terms of a body. There's a lot of connections between the idea of the church as a body and the church as a community. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. 
For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, and miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administering, ministrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And in Galatians 6 and verse 2, Paul says that we are to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Now he's trying to point out that in the context in Corinth, they had very spiritual gifts that they were exercising in order to make themselves seem great and amazing, but they weren't really using it to help one another. And Paul's trying to point them back and say, wait a sec, look at, look at how this is done. Look at your body. Your body works because you have different parts with different functions that work together. The whole body can't be an eye, then you couldn't hear. The whole body can't be a hand, how could it walk? But there's different parts doing their own things. And you don't have some parts saying, well, you know what? Uh, I'm not an ear. The eye doesn't say that. Therefore, I'm not necessary. We don't hear that from the eye. The arm says, well, I'm not a leg, so I'm not useful. And it's also, the arm doesn't say a leg. Well, since you're not an arm, we have no need of you. You know, all, The body parts are all working together. They have a shared identity as your body, but they have different parts, and they do different things. The hand does not do the thing that the eye does, which does not do the thing the ear does, which does not do the thing the leg does, and so on and so forth. And a very important part is is the idea that if a member suffers, all suffer together. That if there's difficulties going on with parts of the body, that the whole body suffers in its own way and must work to build up what is weak and what needs strengthening. And there's the idea there necessary, that we are to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. We have such an individualist mindset anymore that we've kind of neglected that. But Paul wants to get get us away from that and get back to that idea of sharing together. That together we will be able to do this. This is not something that we can do all on our own individually. Never has been, never will be. And that's the way it works in a community. In a community, you don't have everybody doing all the same things. You think about a small town. 
and maybe you need to go back a few years, but you think of a small town, you had certain people who had different skill sets. Some people were farmers, some people maybe were blacksmiths or you know, later uh, adapters of technologies. Uh, some people did the writing, some people did the crafting, some people didn't. You know, everybody would have a certain set of basic skills. Everybody would be able to help out with other people at other times specifically, uh, but there was a recognition that different people did different things and that allowed the community to work together. And that's the idea in the body of Christ. And so we see that absolutely the, the New Testament expects us to work together. That in fact, this idea that the, the church is a community is a very real thing. There's supposed to be this connection within the church that makes it as a community. The important thing is that we need to strengthen that bond, that we need to build the body so that it builds its work to build up the body so that it strengthens itself in love, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. That's what it's all about. So we need to strengthen the body. Why? Why is that so important to strengthen the community, the people of God? Well, the first one is because it's to make the body work. Again, so easy for people to think of the church, think of themselves as the individual automaton, that everything's about them and it's in its own way, this is the way this works, that the church is something for which they can get some stuff out of, not necessarily expecting that they would also be giving as well. Uh, not only that, uh, that's assuming that they're even willing to get in the church, because Americans also are not good at sharing space. Uh, they don't want to have um, uh, their personal space invaded. Uh, if you doubt this, if you've ever had the experience of traveling overseas, you learn very quickly that no matter how comfortable you think you are with other people, you learn that you're not nearly comfortable enough to live, say, in Europe uh, without some major accommodation. But we can even see this in the way that transportation works. Have you ever been on a bus or a train or an airplane that doesn't have assigned seats? How does this generally work when people get on these things? If the bus is, you know, there's all these people who are on the bus, they don't necessarily know each other and seating is voluntary. People are going to sit one row away from each other. So you're going to have gaps between the rows where people are sitting. And then you get to the point where uh, you have somebody in every other row. And so the next person on the bus or on the train or what have you will start filling in so that there's one person per row. So now nobody has to sit next to each other. Uh, but there's one person per row. But then if you get to the point where, oh boy, let's say all of a sudden each row is filled up, now you actually have to do that awkward thing of finding someone next to sit next to, and that's nothing but awkward for everybody because now you have to sit next to somebody. And that just goes to show how much we value our space. That's not just true physically. Because emotionally, we like having our space from other people. In the New Testament, there's an expectation that Christians are accountable to each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a man took his father's wife, and the community was expected to uh, distance themselves from this person because he was flagrantly living in sin without repentance. That required accountability. They couldn't just say, well, you know, God's going to judge in the end. We have nothing to do with this. Uh, we're all individuals. That's not the way Paul treated that at all. And in chapter 6, talking about uh, lawsuits and things of that nature, same situation. James 5 and verse 16, uh, they do where to confess our sins to one another, that we may be healed. Uh, there's an idea there of accountability to each other. And if we're going to be accountable to each other, we have to act like it. And we have to give account to one another. And how is that going to happen? Well, 
It's only when we have some kind of close association with one another, when we actually get to know each other, to help each other, and encourage each other, then the body of Christ can function smoothly the way God intends in 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians chapter 4. And so that's why we have to get over some of our discomfort with, with uh, having people in near proximity to us so that we can effectively accomplish God's purposes. And another example, reason for it is we need to be an example for those who are outside or astray from Christ because we have an example to the world that we present. When was the last time you heard anybody say, this church is a cold organization whose members have little contact with one another and really aren't concerned for one another. They barely see each other outside a Sunday morning and uh, seem like they could be doing other things. I want to be part of that group. We don't hear that very often, do we? How many leave the church because they don't feel like they're a part of it? How many ever join the church because it does not seem to want them? That's very easy when, when somebody leaves the church or something falls apart. It's very easy to start blaming that person. They have these issues. They have these problems. They should know better. And, you know, sometimes, a lot of times, we got all kinds of difficulties, right? And in any situation, there's probably some level of blame to be assigned to those who have left. But have we done what we can on our part? In this situation, something that we could have done better. A lot of times, the problem is less their perception. In fact, uh, their perception is exactly what is accurate. The problem is that they see the church for what it really is, not merely what it professes. We, we, we get so easily self-deceived. We, we believe that we're a very welcoming and friendly group of people because that's the way we want to see ourselves. Uh, we are friendly and welcoming to one another, so surely that's the way we appear to everybody else. We care for each other. We know we care for each other, right? Uh, sometimes, though, that's not really true in reality it's just true in our heads and people from without they they're really good at perceiving that they can see that real fast and really how can we expect to evangelize the world and bring people into the community if we've not been tending to and strengthening our own community this goes back to this idea of keeping a house clean if we're going to bring in guests and visitors we want to have the house cleaned up and house cleaned up when it comes to the church are people who care for each other, uh, showing that care. It's not saying that we're going to hide all our problems, pretend that nothing wrong is going on. That's actually often the problem, uh, that people aren't really being real, they're all being fake, and who wants to be part of a group of fake people? Uh, instead, that we are addressing the difficulties and challenges that we come across, honestly, as something that's very compelling for people. And that's why we need to be examples in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, 1 Peter 2 and 3, not just as individuals, but also in terms of our community. Uh, would the community around you even notice if your community in the church disbanded and did no longer exist? What kind of influence does the peop do the people have? So we do need to strengthen the community for our own sakes and for the sake of our mission. So how can we do that? How do we strengthen the community? Well, uh, Peter gives us a great exploration and explanation of exactly how we can do this in 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we see here, we are to maintain our lives in prayer, to be sober-minded, to be clear-headed about what's going on. We are to love one another, we are to be hospitable, and we are to use the gifts that we've been given to serve one another. So how does this work in practice? Well, we need to show love. And again, this is something, nobody's going to argue with this, right? You're not going to argue with this with me, are you? We need to show love. Christians need to be known for love, sure. But do we really work at it, especially among one another. I mean, we are to love our brethren, aren't we? What does it look like to love our brethren? Well, we have conversations with each other, right? How do those conversations go? Hi. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Good. That wasn't a conversation. It sounded like a conversation. But for all intents and purposes in America today, that's just a greeting. That's a platitude of social convention right there. That's a way that we say, hey, I acknowledge your existence and I'm going to give the pretense of concern about your life just so that we can pass the time in recognizing that we know each other and we are in the same shared space. We know this because if you're having a conversation with somebody you know somewhat well and you are concerned for them, how would you go about communicating that? Hey, how are you doing? Good. No, no. How are you really doing? Notice that. We never really were expecting the first statement to be answered honestly. We had to then emphasize, how are you really doing? As in, let's get past the social pretense and let's get to the heart of the issue. And this is not something for which there's judgmentalism to be done. Well, why didn't he just tell you that in the first place? Because, have you ever been in a circumstance where the opposite happens? Hey, how are you doing? Well, you know, man, things have not been really that great. I've had these health problems going on. i got these money problems. And you're saying, wait a second. In your brain, you're saying, wait a second, wait, violation, violation. You're just supposed to tell me, all right, and we're supposed to move on, right? Because, again, there's this social convention that this is the platitude. This is all a greeting. Uh, guys can accomplish this whole thing with just a head nod. Uh, and, and so that's not really communication. That's not really conversation. That's just an acknowledgement of each other's existence. And so if we're going to really show love, we need to go beyond just the standard social convention. We need to find ways of of really being there for each other to catalyze those opportunities to grow that relationship. If people are going through difficulties, do we say, hey, do you need anything? That's what a lot of people want to do. Oh, do you need anything? We're here for you if you need anything. It's a very easy thing. I say that often as well. It's kind of like the default, right? If there's anything you need, I'm here for you. But what's the answer that you're going to get to that? Is there going to be any, is there any really reason to trust that? Some people there are. Some people, they realize that they trust you or they're so desperate they're going to just hold grasp onto anything and are willing to try to trust that. But most of the time, that's not looked at as a serious offer. We may mean it seriously, but even if we think we say we mean it seriously, what if they actually ask? And what they've asked for is not the most convenient. 
are we going to be able to do it? Well, if we don't, we're showing we literally didn't meet in the first place. We were just saying something we felt like we needed to say in the moment. If we don't know the brother or sister in Christ who's going through difficulties, perhaps we should be more specific. Ask, hey, uh, can we help you out with some groceries? Can we help uh, come over and do some cleaning? Can we just come and sit? Find some some way of doing that. Uh, to still make sure we're not imposing upon people, you know, asking questions, giving agency, but with the specificity demonstrating that we're much more serious than just a generic, uh, if I'm here, I'm here if you need me. Um... Maybe we want to uh, study the scripture of somebody. We do well to be specific. Ask to study a particular topic at a particular time. Hey, you know, why don't we get together and look into some Romans? Uh, maybe a Tuesday at 7? Something of that nature. Um, even if somebody doesn't have a pressing need. And it's not just something... We don't just show love when somebody's going through difficulties. Uh, we should try to communicate consistently. And both within and without the assembly. Finding times to talk. Uh, even a small talk. Just kind of get to know each other a bit better. So we can be more comfortable. So we can say, hey, yeah, let's... Uh, let, let's do this so that we can depend upon each other when necessary. That's what bearing burdens really means. And Peter doesn't really leave us confused as to how this happens. It happens in the display of hospitality. And I understand this can be difficult, especially if people don't have the means or they live far away from fellow Christians. Um, but a lot of the, the issues really are more about us than we'd like to admit, even when it comes to having people over uh, the judgmentalism is kind of we, the way we, we judge ourselves about that is harsher generally than the people are who, who we've invited into our home and, and respect the need for cleaning, respect uh, concern about general things. But is there a little bit of that where we feel like we need to measure up to some standard, uh, which uh, to, to put on airs uh, is a danger in that circumstance? And on the other hand, people who are going to get judgy about other people's houses if they've been invited over have a whole set of issues as well, right? But even if it's not really a great option for you to have people in your home, there are eating establishments or other places that you can go to to spend time together. We should not consider it a trial to have to travel to be with brethren. Um, there's a lot of emphasis placed here on the love being shown because when we have what's called table fellowship, which again can be a distort is an English way of using that term fellowship that can distort from the Greek, but the idea of spending time with each other across the table is a, a very the very human and quintessentially human way of spending time together, investing in other people, saying I care enough about you to do this, and can really help grow relationships and. Um, think about in your own life, how many people have you gotten to know effectively and well just from interactions in the assembly or the occasional phone call? Um, the people they tend to know, you've tended to share meals together. You've tended to do things together because you've shared meals together. That all started with the meal sharing. Not the church's responsibility to facilitate, by the way, we see here. Peter does not say the church should be doing this. The people should be doing this. Uh, but it's a very important part of strengthening that community. The community is only as strong as its weakest connections. And that is why it's so important for the individual constituent members to be active in trying to get to know each other. And you, it's really hard to do that if you're not showing hospitality. Now, in all these things, we admit very easily that a lot of people don't have a ton of money. There are a lot of people who may not speak very well. Uh, there's other things that people may not be able to do well. 
But what's interesting, we've seen when it comes to the church as a body, that everybody has what they can do. There are gifts that God has given to everybody. And Peter here makes it very clear why. Gifts aren't given to us so that we can boast about how amazing we are or to show that we're better than other people. Instead, they're humble opportunities for us to serve, that we can take uh, what God has given us and give it back to the people of God for the strengthening of the body and the community. Um, You can maybe help with money or with time or some skill. Maybe you just need to be present with somebody. There's something we all have that we can provide for one another. And that's the benefit that Peter envisions in 1 Peter 4. And that's, again, helping us all strengthen each other. Because individually, we're all going to fail in many respects. We're, uh, God does not expect us to be Renaissance people. We're not superheroes. Uh, there are certain things we're better at than other people. And there are certain things we're worse at than other people. That doesn't make us better or worse than other people. It just means that our skill set is one set and other people's skill set are different sets. And the goal is that we all in humility use that to grow together. It's interesting that the Christian is to become more like Christ, but the body of Christ is a collective of the church. It's that only in the collective is all the different elements that are present in Christ manifest to the world. Now, what's behind all of these things about love and hospitality and, 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 and using what we have to serve one another is an essential principle. And that is that we need to become proactive, not reactive. I, I'm convinced that Christians have goodwill and do care for each other. And if you ask, it will be given as much as can possibly be done. Uh, that that Christians will react to situations and will do what they can as they react to situations. And in, but, but that can be its own challenge. See, reactive is waiting for people to come to us to tell you their needs. And difficulty with that is that in order for a group of people who are reactive to be of benefit, somebody has to put the trust in them to let them know their needs. And Sometimes that's a bridge too far for people. And that is why so many have been separated and alienated from the people of God uh, for many reasons. Proactive, though, is actively engaging people to find out their needs or to meet their needs um, beforehand in some way. And this is something that we see actually throughout the rest of our lives. Uh, proactive reactive is not merely something that should be true in the church. When we think about uh, almost anything else, you think about homes or cars or any kind of property you may have of any value. Uh, you need to do what we call preventative maintenance on those things. Uh, if you don't fix a problem um, early, it could become worse. If uh, you, with, with cars you do tune-ups and you do checks and you change certain belts early uh, because you don't want to wait to the problem because the problem could destroy the car. So you you, you get things on early to be proactive, to know that certain things are going to break down. There's ways you can do that with a house uh, and other things. Uh, with uh, our bodies, uh, same thing, right? Uh, you want to go in and get checked out to see if there's any health issues that are coming on the horizon. You deal with them earlier, the, the less difficult they will be. You don't want to wait till you're in full crisis mode. So we can see that many times in our physical lives, we need to be proactive, not reactive. But it's a difficulty in all of that because it's just easier to be reactive, right? It's always easier to wait and to put off fixing problems until they become problems that, that cannot be uh, neglected anymore. But unfortunately, when you do that, they always come at a higher cost. 
it's much more comfortable for us to wait for somebody to come to us than for us to go and do what can be very uncomfortable and go to others. And uh, something in society, as uh, we've been trained by our society to become consumerist, and so in that way, uh, services normally cater to us. And so we get used to that kind of thing. It takes a whole lot less effort and a lot less emotional investment if we wait for others to come to us rather than for us to deal with the awkward and deal with the discomfort and putting our foot forward to come toward them. But think about, for instance, evangelism. It's possible that there's a person who is able to come to knowledge of the Lord Jesus and be saved purely through reactions. Uh, that they have... Um, they have shown the initiative entirely themselves. They've been the proactive ones, and very little has been done on the part of the people of God to uh, to have that happen. But that's the vast minority of experiences. Uh, most people who come to Christ do so because somebody was proactive enough to ask them to come to services or to study or to uh, had a conversation about the faith. Um, so, what happened with your life? Did you convert because of a reaction or because somebody approached you? And so if that's true, that we understand as an evangelism principle that we have to, at some level, be proactive in evangelism. How much more so should we be proactive with those who are in our midst? Because, after all, they're our fellow people. They should not be rejecting us, right? And if we put that time in and willing to absorb the difficulty, the awkwardness, the discomfort, we might find that uh, the standard platitudes that we hear are diminished, that we, uh, the issues we're dealing with may, may, may kind of shift to things that are much more compelling, much more important the side of God. We can help bear the burdens of others, and they in turn can help bear our burdens. And if we're proactive, we're actively working to strengthen the community that way, everybody benefits because we can help others in their walk and that we ourselves will be strengthened as well. And in fact, it seems very much like the example of Jesus that Peter stresses so much in First Peter because Jesus was willing to suffer the awkward, suffer the difficulty, suffer the pain in order to bridge the gap. And so that's something that we need to keep in our minds as his servants as well. And that's why we need to be proactive in showing our love for one another, to be hospitable to one another, and to serve one another in any way that we can. And so, yes, the church is well and accurately described as a community. It's an ecclesia, the assembly of God. And what kind of assembly is there that doesn't assemble? And the koinonia, the association, the community, the joint participation of believers. What kind of association can there be among us if we're not actually jointly participating in anything, if we're not actually associating? Oh, there will be a community, again, because the community just is an existence of a relationship. But it's not going to be that strong. And it's not going to be that compelling. And it may turn out to be more of an anchor and a weight and a burden than anything beneficial. And that is why we need to strengthen community, to be proactive in loving one another, to be hospitable, to serve one another in any possible way that we can. And so let us do our part to strengthen community, to share in that community, to grow that community. We're so glad that you've joined us in our conversation and hope that you've been benefited by it. Hey, and if you have been benefited, why don't you share it? Let other people know online or other places about uh, about this discussion, about the nature of the church, the church as a community. If you haven't joined the community of the people of God, you have the opportunity to do that. You'd like to be strengthened in that association, any way that we can be of service through maybe a Bible study or um, other messages. Maybe you'd like to come and visit us at the Venice Church of Christ. You can find out about us online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of any service myself, you can reach me through my website at deverbovitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Again, thank you. Have a great day.